I want to read through the end of the chapter and, and um, you know, deal with a passage that's, um, again, it's tough. Um, you know, kind of heard some, somebody say recently, I, I don't like the minor prophets. I, I like to be lifted up, you know. Well, I, I, I tell you, you know, it's tough to work your way through the minor prophets because there's a lot of tough stuff here, and there are woes in this chapter. And you may not know sort of technically what a woe is, but you know what a woe is. It's not pleasant. It's, it's uncomfortable. It's not uplifting. But let me tell you something, and this is what's so much fun about the minor prophets. This is another where's Waldo thing, okay? Because buried in this passage, as is so often the case in the minor prophets, there are these little gems of unspeakable encouragement and fun. Really. So look for Waldo, okay? Look for Waldo in this passage. Habakkuk 2, beginning at verse 6. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, and of course the one who is in view is the Babylonian and in fact the whole kingdom of Babylon and as we come to find out as history unfolds supremely, Nebuchadnezzar himself. That's the one who's in view here. And what follows is this taunt. It's this provocation. It's this song that actually seeks to excite in the one who hears it. A response of, you've got to be kidding me. Woe. To him who heaps up what is not his own, for how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise, and those who awake, and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them, because you have plundered many nations. All the remnants of the people shall plunder you, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. And the image in verse 11 is of a castle or a big building, a, a, a big stone edifice crumbling to the ground and being consumed with fire. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and for the violence done to the earth, to the cities and all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? a metal image, a teacher of lies. 
where its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there's no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Let's pray. Lord, we are your people before you. Those for whom Jesus has died. Those who have been gathered to yourself by his grace. Would you give us your spirit now? Would you encourage our hearts with this word? Would you teach us? Would you stir us up to rest in you and trust you and not do what these foolish Babylonians did and trust themselves to the work of their own hands which cannot save, cannot speak, cannot act, in which there is no breath. Lord, help us by your spirit as we come to your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I had a lunch appointment this last week. Um, I had a couple of them actually, but this particular lunch appointment, um, I was there uh, a bit early, was waiting for my appointment to arrive, and I could overhear the conversation among the folks next to me. There were two or three people who were talking, and and uh, they were doing what I suppose we're all doing. They were talking about the current state of affairs, right? We're all talking about the current state of affairs, aren't we? The new administration, the new policies, et cetera, et cetera. What, what about all of this? You know, I heard one guy say, can you believe that? You know? What's going to happen? Where are we headed? Perplexity, uncertainty, ambiguity. Perplexity, uncertainty, ambiguity that lead to doubt, that lead to fear, that lead to anxiety. Mark Futato was here a couple of weeks ago. He, he referred to the sort of the current economic situation, certain thing we're all kind of passing through. He, he likened it to the chaos of Genesis 1-1. Chaos, disorder, craziness. Stuff just seems to be out of control. Well, Habakkuk, uh, you want to remember, had his own perplexities, his own confusions, his own questions. That's what we've been looking at as we've made our way through this little prophet. Perplexities that he needed to have addressed, just as we have to have our perplexities addressed. His perplexities were different in some respects, um, just as the perplexities of others in our world in our day are very different from our own. We've got our set of perplexities, but my friends, uh, the pastors in Tanzania, they have a different set of perplexities. You know, they wonder if it's going to rain enough during the rainy season to provide crops for them to be able to grow their corn, which they need to eat, and to grow a little bit of cotton that they bundle up so that they can have something to sell. You know, they, they have perplexities. Point is, whether it's Habakkuk all those years ago or Tanzanians in our day or us in our particular circumstance, everybody's got perplexities. And how does God respond to our perplexities? How does he respond to Habakkuk's perplexities? Here's what God did for Habakkuk. 
folks, and this is what I, you know, I tried, however imperfectly, you know, you, you get done doing this on Sunday mornings, and you go home and you think, did that make any sense at all to anybody? Don't say no, please. <laughs> you know, this is what I tried to press home last week, that what God does for Habakkuk is lift him up out of himself and get him to look over the horizon of history. I like that image. Look over the horizon of history, the history that he can see, the circumstances that he can see, the things that he can see that are unfolding, to fix his attention and fix his gaze on something that's over the horizon that he can't see, but that he's encouraged to see. And the Bible is doing that constantly for God's people. Trying to get us up outside of ourselves. Look at where Habakkuk is. Remember verse 1 of chapter 2? He goes up into his watchtower. He gets up to a higher place. Now, he literally did that, but it's a wonderful image, isn't it? It's a wonderful figure. And he goes up into that place because he has some expectation that God's going to hear him and he's going to see something. Okay? Well, that's what God is doing for us. He's trying to get us up outside of ourselves. And for Habakkuk, you remember from last week, he gets him to look over the horizon beyond what he can see to a time which is appointed, to a day which is coming, a day when this Babylonian horde is going to be brought down. This Babylonian horde will suffer judgment. And I suggested to you, however briefly, that Daniel picks up the language of Habakkuk and looks beyond even the fall of Nebuchadnezzar, which did occur in his day some 70 years after Habakkuk, an appointed time, an appointed day, an appointed judgment, which Habakkuk himself never saw, but which Daniel did. Daniel picks all of that up, and he makes a prophecy. He looks way over the horizon of history to a greater day of judgment when God will bring down earthly Babylon, every institution, everything that stands opposed to God in his glory. Not just a little, little Nebuchadnezzar, not just a little Babylon, but any and everything that stands against him. That day is coming. And God's people are encouraged to live by faith in this word that comes from God and is spoken to his people. The just by his faith shall live, looking over the horizon of history at things which God has promised will come to pass and which most certainly will come to pass. Living like Robin Hood and his band of merry men. You know it's my favorite fairy tale, those of you who have been around for a while. Robin Hood, Robin Hood, with his band of men. Robin Hood, Robin Hood, waiting for the day when King Richard the Lionheart returns. And when he returns, the evil Prince John gets tossed off his throne, the Sheriff of Nottingham gets locked up, and peace and prosperity and righteousness and justice will prevail in Sherwood Forest. That's the great story of history, folks. That's the great story of history. That's what God is doing right now. Kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall. I don't say that lightly. I don't suggest to you that people will not suffer pain and anguish and deep sorrow and grief as kingdoms rise and fall. They will. But what do we have to say to the world? What does the Christian have to say to the world? As the world frets in a bar and worries about a new administration and wonders what these policies are going to, what do we have to say? 
We have a lot to say. And against the backdrop of that great hope, let me suggest to you three things that get a little bit more specific as you look at this particular passage in Habakkuk. Three things that come out of this. First, there is, a, there is a greater judgment and there are good reasons for it. Okay, there is a greater judgment and there are good reasons for it. There is a greater glory that is coming. And then third, there is a greater king who will reign. Okay, so there's a greater judgment and there are good reasons for it. There's a greater glory and there is a greater king. As you work your way through this chapter, verses 6 through 20, you get the reasons for judgment. And this should really be an encouragement to God's people. I know people don't like to talk about judgment. I understand that. I know you don't like to talk about it, but I've said this to this congregation repeatedly. I want to say it again. In your heart of hearts, deep in the depths of your soul, you want to know that righteousness will prevail and that injustice will be banished. Which is to say, you really do, even though you don't like to talk about it and don't like to think about it, you really do want for somebody who is himself righteous and just and who is in control to take care of injustice and unrighteousness. You want that. Amen. Amen again. Amen a third time. You want that. Now, that's what's going on here. That's I've given you the punchline. Now, let me show you the reasons for the punchline. As you work through these verses, there are five woes, five pronouncements of judgment. And these words of judgment, these pronouncements of judgment, are pronounced upon characteristic traits of Babylonians. Okay, you remember from the first few verses of Habakkuk chapter 2 that this one who is in view is puffed up, is raised up. And you remember from last week, I told you that that word is used to describe an abscess. It's not a pretty picture. It's used to describe an abscess in the scriptures. A boil, a thing that needs to be lanced because what is beneath the surface of it is impure and diseased. And here's the nature of the impurity. In each one of these cases, in each of these verses, verse 6, verse 9, verse 12, verse 15, verse 19, as a woe is pronounced, Woe to him who piles up. Woe to him who builds. Woe to him who continues to build. Woe to him who gives drink. Woe to him who says and speaks. The verbs are all in a participial form, which suggests that they are ongoing practices. They are characteristics of the Babylonians. This is just not an isolated slip-up. These are character traits of the Babylonians. It's all ongoing. What do they do? Well, look first. They heap up, verse 6, they heap up what is not their own. They load themselves with pledges. What's going on there? Well, basically the idea is that these Babylonians, this Babylonian kingdom that is coming, is going to exact tribute. That's what's meant by heaping up pledges. This is how it works throughout the history of the rise and fall of kingdoms. It happened in this particular time. It happened across this particular period of history. The Babylonians would bring the Assyrians to their knees. They would subjugate the Assyrians as well as all of the peoples who were allied with the Syrians, which would include Judah. 
all of these peoples would be subjugated by the Babylonians, and then the Babylonians would tax them. Now, there's a word you understand. <laughs> tax them. They would exact tribute from them so that the Babylonian coffers would be filled to overflowing with the gold and the silver, the precious metals, the precious stones, any coinage, any means by which people interacted economically, all of it would be exacted from these subjugated peoples and it would fill the coffers of Babylon and the coffers of those subjugated peoples would be emptied. And in that, what God is saying to Habakkuk is the Babylonians, in effect, are piling up resentment, anger, frustration. They're piling up debts themselves. And the time is going to come when those peoples will want to be paid back. And when they are paid back, when they seek their repayment, it will come with a vengeance. They're heaping up for themselves tribute from these people from whom they have by Whatever means, as we'll see as we move along, by whatever means, this tribute that is paid to them. And then verse 9, this adds to the picture that's emerging. Verse 9, woe to him who gets evil gain for his house. The, the phrase in the original literally means to cut an evil cut. To cut an evil cut. Here's the image. Again, it's an image from economics, from interpersonal uh, interaction when it comes to economic things, buying and selling things. I had a fellow stop by. I was cutting my grass yesterday. He's a neighbor. He stopped. We engaged in conversation. He said, your yard looks really nice. I said, thank you very much. He shook his head, and he said, you know, a lot of these people out there who take care of lawns because fertilizer has become so expensive, They'll actually cut back on the amount of fertilizer that they put into the mix that they put on your lawns, but they'll charge you the same amount as before. That's to cut an evil cut. That's an unfair balance. That's, you know, that's attaching a little weight to the bottom of the scale so that when you put the flour on this side of the scale, you're actually apportioning less flour for the one who's purchasing it from you. That's to cut an evil cut. So how are they? They're not only engaged in extortion as they exact this tribute from the nations. They're doing it in an unjust way, an unethical way. So they're seeking these payments. They're doing it with injustice. And then verse 12, not only is there injustice, but there's also violence, blood or bloodshed. Verse 12, woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. And here's what's going on there. It's more broad than just the idea of literal blood being shed. Basically what this refers to is the gaining of wealth, the gaining of power, the gaining of dominance at the expense of human dignity. At the expense of human dignity. In this case, it's forced labor. 
It's the practice of enslaving a subject people. Not only do they exact tribute, not only is it characterized by injustice, by unrighteousness, but in this case, this practice of extortion involves the enslaving of another people in order to build up one's kingdom. Literal slavery, ruthless, callous, heartless exploitation of human beings. That's what's going on here, just like Pharaoh in Egypt. Exploited ruthlessly, callously, the people of Israel. And when they cried out to God from their misery and their suffering, God heard them. Why did he hear them? Two good reasons. Number one, he had covenanted with them to save them centuries before, but before covenanting with an unrighteous people in order that he might save them, he himself is righteous and just. And when his people cry out because he is righteous and just and because he has promised that he will redeem his people because of his own righteousness, his own justice, his own character, he hears their cries, he won't fail in his promise, and he moves to redeem them. A little parenthetical thing here, hit the pause button, look at 1 John 1, nine sometime. It's a wonderful phrase that summarizes this thing that's going on here. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins. You see, just as was true with Israel back in their bondage in Egypt, when you do what we did this morning, when you come before the Lord and acknowledge that you are sinful, that you have broken his law, what he sees is the cross of his son. And seeing the cross of his son, he hears your cry and is pleased to forgive you and cleanse you because, this is stunning, it would be an injustice for a God who is just, whose justice has been satisfied in the cross, it would be an injustice for him if he failed to forgive your sin. Wow. You see? This business of justice and righteousness and God's very character is critical for us. God is just as he looks at the exploitation, the heartless, callous exploitation of human beings. When he looks at people who gain wealth by the exploitation of real human beings. Okay? So what is Bernie Madoff's Ponzi scheme? It's an injustice, friends. It's an injustice perpetrated against trusting, unsuspecting people. So what is, if you want to get mad at me for putting these things in the same sentence, let's talk afterward. Okay, what is the sex trade in Southeast Asia where young girls are sold by parents or by other members of the family into prostitution in order to gain financial security. It is the ruthless, callous exploitation 
of human beings. What is slavery in any form? It is the ruthless, callous exploitation of real human beings. And it matters to God. So they're exacting tribute. They're doing it in unjust ways. They are exploiting real human beings. They are making their wealth. They are building up their houses, building up their kingdoms, building up their cities at the cost of blood, real blood, people's lives. And then verse 15. Woe to him who makes his neighbor drink. This, you know, there's a great progression in this. You know, the greed sort of leads to this exacting tribute by unjust measures at the expense of human beings. And once the town, the city has been built up, once the kingdom has been established, what does the king do? Go read Daniel, Daniel chapter 5. You get a picture of Belteshazzar, who is the embodiment of what is being described here. What happens next? Unrestrained sensuality. That's, that's what you have here. Come over to my house for dinner. The trusting neighbor says, I'd be glad to. But unrestrained sensuality exploits the trust of that neighbor, the kind of trust that should exist between friends. The language actually of verse 16 is the kind of language, 15 and 16 is the kind of language that you can't really talk about in mixed company. But what's being described here is one who invites another into his home, who invites him to drink, who invites him to drink more, so that he may in fact gaze upon that one's nakedness. You get the picture here? Further exploitation to satisfy the sensuality, the sensual longings. And then finally, verse 19. Woe to him who entrusts himself to what his hands have made. You see the progression Something's desperately wrong in the hearts of these Babylonians. Something is desperately wrong in Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonians. The lust for power, the the greed, the lust to control, the lust to acquire leads them to dominate people, to exact tribute from people by unjust measures. Leads them to do violence to them. Leads them then to further exploit even those in their own cities and towns to satisfy to satisfy these shameless and unrestrained and licentious heart attitudes. Then the last word of condemnation, you've built this city, you've erected this city, and you have entrusted yourself to it. It has become your God. That's the gist of what's going on here. Yeah, there are literal idols that are in view here, things made of silver, things made of wood, things that can't speak, things that have no breath in them. But if you listen to Daniel and you listen to Nebuchadnezzar and what Nebuchadnezzar says, 
Nebuchadnezzar who stands on the palace roof and looks out over his kingdom and says, is this not Babylon, which I have created, which I have built for the glory of my majesty? Nebuchadnezzar describes at the end of the day what it is that goes on with all of these Babylonians who entrust themselves to these things. They are idols. They can't speak. They have no life. And God pronounces judgment upon them. And all of this, again, points us to God. The infinite, personal, triune God. This is the theme let me say it again. It comes at us from virtually every page of the Minor Prophets. It points us to God, the infinite, personal, triune God who is at home in the universe he has made. He hasn't abandoned it. He sees, he knows, he cares. He cares about greed and injustice. He cares about exploitation. He cares about wrong. And he cares about what is right and he has power to do something about all of this. And he will. And he will. And that is a good thing. It's not easy to hear, I admit it. But at the end of the day, it is a good thing. God will deal with oppressors. He will deal with the evil. Robert Mugabe must face his creator. He will. Every evil tyrant will face his creator. Pimps will face their creator. Southeast Asian crime lords will face their creator. They will. And that's a good thing. Now this leads to the second thing. Nebuchadnezzar who erected this kingdom, who built up this kingdom for the glory of his majesty, for the glory of his majesty, would learn that there is a greater glory. Look at verse 14. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Verse 14 tells us there is a greater glory. The knowledge of the glory of the Lord will fill the earth. It will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. There is another glory, not just the glory of Nebuchadnezzar or other tyrants. There is a greater glory, and that glory will engulf and enfold and surround the whole of the earth. And here's the stunning thing about that glory. The glory of the Lord is not established by the exploitation and oppression of people. The glory of the Lord is not built up through the blood of brutalized people. The glory of the Lord, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord that is going to cover the earth is a glory that is so utterly counterintuitive, so contrary to human reasoning, so completely unexpected and unpredictable that only God could conceive it. The glory of the Lord, the greater glory, the greatest glory of all glories is that the judge becomes the judged. 
the righteous king becomes the unrighteous rebel. The infinite, eternal, unseen, and ineffable God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the creator of the tribes of man, the one who gives life, which life is reflected in the Old Testament by the term blood, that king becomes the blood-soaked victim. So that rebels, those guilty, of incredible unkindness and injustice at every level may be made clean. Listen to Jesus, John 17. Father, the hour has come. Glorify the Son that the Son may glorify you. What's he talking about? He's talking about the cross. This is hours before the cross. The hour has come, the appointed time over the horizon from where Habakkuk was, over the horizon from where Daniel or Isaiah or anybody, the appointed time, the fullness of time, the day of the Lord comes. And the glory of the Lord is seen in a penultimate judgment, a judgment that precedes the final judgment where the judge himself becomes the judged, where the eternal king becomes the unrighteous rebel so that rebels can look upon him and be saved. I had a conversation not long ago with somebody who raised this question of people who were deserving of heaven. It was an honest question. Folks, let me, me, however tenderly, pastorally I can, Let me challenge you with this. I know you look at Robert Mugabe and you know he's a thug. I know you look at Nebuchadnezzar and you know he's a thug. I know you look at pimps and you know they're unrighteous and unclean. I know you look at those crime lords in Southeast Asia and you want their heads. I do too. But be careful what you ask for. If you ask for justice... You might get it. This conversation, this person raised the question of those who are deserving. And my response was simply to say there is only one person who is deserving of heaven. And that is Jesus. And here's the miracle of the glory of God. That the one who deserves becomes the undeserving so that the utterly undeserving may be made deserving. That is the glory of the Lord, my friends. That is the glory of the Lord that has been entrusted to the church, which the church is to herald to the uttermost parts of the earth so that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord may cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And that leads then to the third thing. There is a greater kingdom. The Lord is in his holy temple that all the earth keeps silence before him. The term that's translated temple literally means palace. It's the same word that's used in Daniel 4.30 when Daniel refers to his royal palace, the royal residence, the place where the king resides. The Lord is in his holy residence, his 
holy residence. And just think how different this king is. Some of us here are reading this book by Ed Welch called Running Scared, and it's really a great book. I encourage you to get it, read it. It's, it's really wonderful. And in the book, early in the book, Ed Welch refers to the parable of the prodigal son to show us just how different the king of glory is. In the culture of the day, it would have been true in Habakkuk's day, it would have been true in Jesus' day, sons existed in order to exalt the honor of the father. And in the parable of the prodigal son, the son, instead of bringing honor to the father, brings shame to the father. And the father's response, and this is a distillation of it, the father's response is to shame himself, humiliate himself, so that the son might be honored. That's the parable of the prodigal God to steal Tim Keller's latest book title. The prodigal God, the king of glory, who shames himself by pulling up his dress and running through the streets to embrace this licentious, rebellious son who has brought such disgrace to him. It's the gospel that God would disgrace himself in order to ensure the exaltation of the son. Luke 12, 32 is a passage that a friend sent me just a couple of weeks ago. One verse, do not be afraid. It ends up being mentioned in Ed Welch's book. Do not be afraid, little flock. Do not be afraid, sheep. Do not be afraid, tender lambs. This is Jesus speaking. It is the Father's pleasure to give you the kingdom. You see the difference? Other kings exact tribute in order to build up their kingdoms. This king gives away the riches of his kingdom to tender, helpless, defenseless little sheep like us. What do we have to say to the world? This is good news. There's a king who knows, who cares, who has power to do something about what's wrong. But he's not like any other king because he has made a place of forgiveness for all who have perpetrated acts of injustice and unkindness against other people. He is a king who becomes the blood-soaked victim for those he came to save. And that is his glory. And there is another kingdom which does not exact tribute, but in which the king actually gives all of the kingdom to his children. That's different, folks. That's what you have to say to people when you're sitting in a bar someplace or a restaurant, or any place else, and you hear people saying, what's going to happen? Here's what's going to happen. These three things. Let's pray together.